You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Cameron, Elias, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Bigbeard, Willie P, Schmarls, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our quartermasters, Hunter, Buddy, Heather, Howard, and Crimson Davy Thunder. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Ace Tie Pilot, Chuck Wagon Gamer, and Samantha, as well as our newest Commodores, Elias and Cameron. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. We left off last time with Henry Every and the crew of the Fancy somewhere in the southern Atlantic Ocean. Their holds were full of live sea turtles, fresh water, wine, salt, and human beings intended for the slave trade, as well as unbelievable riches. Their plunder, by this point, had mostly been converted into gold and silver, pearls, jewelry, diamonds, and other assorted gemstones, and the aforementioned slaves. There was a problem, though, for the pirates. While all of that plunder was really valuable, they really couldn't use any of it. I mean, sure, if you were to go to a tavern in 1696 and order a bottle of rum, the barkeep would probably accept a fancy gold diamond-studded tiara, or, you know, a, a, a ruby. But you'd have to be a fool to make that trade. And any major purchases the pirates may have wanted to make, you know, land or ships or other big investments, well... Whoever sold that big purchase would certainly take a look at the payment. And at this moment, every Englishman in the world was on the lookout for scruffy sailors bearing gold, silver, or jewels. The pirates had to turn all of that plunder into smaller and untraceable coins. 
That means they needed a colonial governor who was willing to look the other way, for a price, who also had access to a mint, or at least a facility that would melt their precious metals down, that would also keep their mouths shut for an additional price. New York was probably their best option, but Henry Avery didn't know New York. He didn't know Benjamin Fletcher. He was from England. I don't think he'd ever been to New York. As this story played out, there were a number of English governors along the Atlantic coasts of the West Indies and North America that were willing to play ball, but one governor in particular stands out. The first governor with which the pirates on board the Fancy met. His name was Nicholas Trot, and he was the governor of the Bahamas. This is episode 233, Fortune and Freedom. The Fancy was on the way to the Bahamas, and we're going to use this opportunity to introduce one of the main characters in the story that is to come. We're talking about the Bahamas, in particular New Providence Island and the capital city of Nassau. Nassau is a character in the story of the pirates. It's more than just a setting for the story of the pirates, similar to Port Royal or Tortuga, but really much more so. It's going to shape the story of the pirates moving forward. So today we're going to introduce her. Bahamian geography is going to be important to our story, but it's kind of tough to impart on a podcast. You'll do better with a map, and I will put one up on the website, but I'm going to try to do my best over the next couple of episodes to describe it. The Bahamas are made up of over 700 islands, but of course, not all islands are created equal. There are... By and large, roughly speaking, three distinct variations found in the Bahamas. There are the large islands covered in vegetation that are big enough for agriculture and habitation. Naturally, these are where the majority of the story will take place, but then there are the atolls. An atoll is a ring-shaped island formed from a spent volcano and usually atop a coral reef, and in the center of the ring shape is a body of water. There's a lot of atolls in the Bahamas, but they're really not good for all that much, aside from being, you know, kind of pretty, but you're not going to find much there, aside from maybe a hidden treasure chest or a cache of rum. By far, though, the most common type of island in the Bahamas is the Key. A key is just a small outcropping of sand, occasionally large enough to have some vegetation, maybe as much as a few palm trees, and they always sit atop a coral reef. That coral reef atop which they sit is essential to the formation of a key, officially speaking, at least. Colloquially, we tend to use the word key for any small island in a tropical climate, but they're supposed to be on top of a reef. In this context, the word key actually originated in the Bahamas, which kind of makes sense. The Spanish had never encountered islands like this when their first explorers arrived. They're named after the indigenous people 
that the Spanish encountered on their first voyages to the Bahamas, the Lucayan people. The Spanish called these tiny little islands Cayo, after the Lucayan. The Dutch called them Kai, and the English anglicized it to Keys. All of which is to say, if I slip up and call them Kays at some point, don't blame me. I'm just following older pronunciations. That first Spanish encounter took place on 12 October, 1492. That's when Christopher Columbus made his first landfall in the Americas. He did so at the island of Guanahanay, though the Spanish gave that island their own name. They called it San Salvador. There are a couple of things to note here. The Bahamas is a political distinction. The archipelago, in its complete geographical context, is called the Lucayan Archipelago. But then, of course, all of this ties into, well, what's become something of a controversy lately here in the U.S. Should October the 12th be celebrated as Columbus Day? Now, I don't make policy decisions, but I do have two points here. The Spanish arrival in the Americas was an undeniably momentous event in human history, one of the biggest events in human history. It changed the world forever. But there are no Lucayan people alive today, and that is a direct consequence of Christopher Columbus's decisions, of his actions, including mass slavery and genocide. In his book, The Story of the Bahamas, Paul Albury writes, quote, After the Lucayans were taken away to slavery and death, a human silence settled over the Bahamas. The forests once again claimed the land which they had cleared to build their houses, to grow their crops, and to play their batos. It was almost as if the island people had never existed. End quote. Lucayan culture was wiped out by the Spanish. But it is odd. Even though they were a relatively small group of people and they were gone before the English arrived in the Americas, the Lucayan people do have a disproportionate impact on the English language. They were the first encounter that the Spanish had with a ton of Taino words, and the Spanish used those words, often from that particular Lucayan dialect, for all of the new stuff that they found in the Americas. Words that filtered through Spanish to English, you know, words like hammock, hurricane, canoe, a bunch of crops like tobacco, potato, guava, maize, and cassava. Not to mention, pertinent to our show, the words for bucan and barbecue which through French give us buccaneers. But that passage we read by Paul Albury does make one other notable point. You know, it's all about the forests of the Bahamas, their reclamation of Lucayan lands. And almost all of the Spanish sources, even the really early English sources, note that the islands were lush, dense, and filled with trees and shrubs and wildlife, almost tiny microcosms of a tropical rainforest. But when you picture the Bahamas today, or especially, say, in the early 1700s, they're pretty bare of greenery. 
You know, there will be a few palm trees on some of the smaller islands, but the islands of any real size were almost completely cleared. That was an effect of human habitation, and more specifically, the production of sugar. But that wouldn't come for about another 150 years. By the middle of the 1500s or so, the Bahamas were essentially deserted by human life. You know, the Spanish found much better sugar-producing lands on Hispaniola, and of course Jamaica and Puerto Rico. And the Bahamas stayed empty for about a century. You know, there were occasional explorers, for example, Ponce de Leon made a stop by the Bahamas on his search for the Fountain of Youth. There was an anonymous Spanish report that placed the Fountain of Youth at the island of Bimini. That anonymous source spoke of a natural spring with mystical healing properties that could restore health to anyone who bathed in it. But believe it or not, there actually is a pretty fantastic natural spring on the island with waters that are rich in minerals like calcium and magnesium, minerals that would have been difficult to come by in a sailor's diet of the 1500s. Bathing in it would certainly seem to have regenerative capabilities. Beyond that, though, not much in the way of human activity. In 1629, the English crown granted a governing commission to a small joint stock company, but that really never got off the ground. None of them even set foot in the Bahamas. But finally, in 1648, a small fleet of English Puritan settlers from Bermuda arrived in the region. Bermuda is out in the Atlantic, about 900 miles northeast of the Bahamas. And in 1648, Bermuda was a mostly Puritan settlement with pretty close ties to Oliver Cromwell. They also had close ties to Boston, what with the whole Puritan thing, and with Virginia, thanks to the Summer's Isle Company. But Bermuda was actually getting pretty crowded in the 1640s, and one man on the island named William Sale had a plan. He outfitted two ships and 70 settlers, all of whom were of a particular bent in the Puritan faith, we'll talk about that in a second, but they decided to set a heading to the southwest and arrived in the Bahamas just a couple of weeks later. The details here are sketchy. Exact dates are hard to come by, but we do know that the flagship of this little fleet, the William, ran aground in a passage we know today as the Northeast Providence Passage. This is a particularly dangerous waterway filled with coral reefs and sandbars. It's the kind of place where an unwary pilot was likely to run aground with ease. It was also among the most traveled waterways in the Western Hemisphere in the Age of Sail. It's still in heavy use today, and we are going to be talking a lot, lot more about the Northeast Providence Passage in the days to come. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. William's sail, though, ran aground on a long, thin island with moderate vegetation. In some areas, this island was very, very thin, less than a mile wide in some places. The Lucayan called this island Sigateo, but William Sale gave it a new name. This island, too, William Sale, represented a fresh start, free from all of the social norms and religious constrictions of the old world. After the old Greek word Eleutheros, he called this island Eleutheria. Today we call it Eleuthera. William Sale founded the colony at Eleuthera on two pretty radical and even dangerous ideals, the freedom of religion and the principle of democracy. It's similar to the brand of radical Puritanism that we find in places like Rhode Island, where Women had the right to vote where they opposed slavery, which is radical and ahead of its time, but let us never forget that these were Puritans. No drinking, no dancing, no gambling, and no enjoying sex. Oh, and no Christmas. Deeply, deeply religious people. Now, this group of Puritan Bermudan sailors were not the same group as the Providence Island Company. You may remember them back in 1631, a group of Puritan pirates who also didn't drink or gamble or fornicate. Well, they took over a Spanish island off the coast of Nicaragua. They called it Providence Island, today Providencia. Well, this was a different group of people, but they both came from Bermuda and they both shared a lot of the same last names. A lot of the same families with these same principles were sending out different groups of settlers looking for that paradise where they could find freedom. And, politically speaking at least, they found it. That tiny little colony of no more than 70 settlers has the distinction of being the first Republican democracy in the Western Hemisphere. They set up a bicameral legislative body and dual executive offices, which, for a colony of 70 people, that's a lot of government. But they were a true democracy. What you might consider their lower house of their legislative body was every adult on the island who voted directly on many of the important issues they all faced. But then there was a smaller, 
elected governing body, and also elected two executives. And it was from those two executives that the first cracks began to form. They elected William Sale and another man whose name I'm not going to trouble you with, but there was a fairly major division between those two men, policy-wise. William Sale advocated for freedom of religion, that is, the right to practice your own faith as you see fit, but the other guy advocated for freedom from religion. It's unclear whether he was arguing for a heretical atheist state or whether he was arguing for a more significant division between church and state. And it's unclear because history is written by the victors, and I'm telling you all about William Sale and not even bothering you with the other guy's name. The point is, the settlers could never quite get a handle on this issue. Beyond that, there were also some fairly major problems. They got hit by a couple of hurricanes. They had trouble growing a proper amount of food. After only a couple of years, the settlers slunk back to Bermuda with their tails between their legs. Another group, a group of less doctrinal Puritans, less inclined to republicanism, tried a couple of years later. They had better ties with Puritan North America, which was a big leg up for them. They had a couple of hundred colonists, and thanks to regular infusions of foodstuffs and money from Boston, they lasted quite a bit longer than that first group. But even with all of that outside support, they just were never really able to get local agriculture up and running. You know, had they had the Lucino to show them the ropes, they'd have learned that they didn't get most of their food from farming. Instead, the Lucino did a kind of curated foraging. They had a lot of fruit trees on the island. They had berry bushes and cassava. They had a relatively small base of cultivated maize and yams and potatoes, but the real basis of the Lucino diet was the sea. They set up fish traps and fish farms, and they went hunting for big game on the open ocean. And that's really the missing ingredient in the Puritan colonists' diet. They did some fishing, absolutely, but it wasn't their primary food source, and it really needed to be. They did their best, but eventually, yes, they started going hungry as well. Not quite starving, but not far off. And before long, they started to slip away. Not in large groups, but one by one, or family by family. You know, whenever an English ship might stop by, they could expect to pick up some passengers bound for Jamaica, or Virginia, or more and more, the most common stopping point was the newly founded colony of Carolina. Despite this, though, despite all of the immigration, the population of Eleuthera did not diminish. And it wasn't thanks to childbirth. It was because all of those colonies, Carolina, Jamaica, Boston, Virginia, they saw Eleuthera as a kind of a dumping ground for troublemakers in their colonies. Rabble-rousers especially, and especially people of color. Maybe the 
shameful mestizo children born to respectable white women. Well, they had to be hidden away from polite society, and where better to do that than on an island several hundred miles away? Or any of the free black people in their colony who were not slaves, but certainly weren't citizens. You know, they don't fit into polite English colonial society, so they were shipped off to the Bahamas. Before long, you have this fairly large population living on Eleuthera. And by and large, they did better than the white colonists had, mostly because they were happy to eat fish and, more to the point, they weren't busy trying to grow sugar. All of their energy was spent building houses, producing and preserving food, and making babies. They were building lives on Eleuthera. And in fact, these are the first Bahamian residents to which any modern Bahamian people can trace their ancestry. But then, in 1666, everything changed. Up to that point, the Bahamas had been basically a company colony. They belonged to a joint stock company out of Bermuda, but they clearly weren't getting the job done. King Charles II shifted focus. He appointed a board of Lords Proprietor, based mostly out of Virginia and Carolina. The Lords Proprietor appointed their own governors of the territory and made all the big decisions. And their first big decision was to shift focus from Eleuthera to a small island just west of Eleuthera. On one of those supply runs to Boston, a few years earlier, William Sale had been sailing through that strait into the interior of the Bahamas when he was hit by yet another terrible storm. He lost his mast and his ship began to take on water. He believed this to be the day that he would die. He said his last prayers and prepared to meet his Lord. An indeterminate amount of time later, William Sale awoke, with the sun on his face lying on a bed of soft sand and the waves lapping at his feet. He'd survived, miraculously, and he wasn't alone. Most of his crew survived the shipwreck, and they made their way to this small but lush little island. There were plentiful trees full of fruit, there were turtles to catch, fish in the sea, and even a good source of fresh water. It was, in William Sale's eyes, an act of God, a real miracle. And in thanks to the Lord, he gave this island a name. He called it Providence. Now, that's a name that did not catch on at first, mainly because there was another Providence Island, off the coast of Nicaragua. Instead, the people of the Bahamas called this island Sales Island. But in 1666, when the Lord's proprietor sent their own colonists to Sales Island, the Puritan faith was in decline. They wanted to distance themselves from William Sale and his friends. So they returned to the original name. Providence, but they did need to differentiate it from that other island. So they called this New Providence Island. 
And there on new providence, this new generation of settlers under the Lord's proprietor, they... Well, I was going to say they founded a settlement, but that's not accurate. Really, they found a settlement, and they named it. There were already people living there. But these new colonists called this settlement Charlestown, after the king. Those people already in the settlement now called Charlestown were representative of what New Providence Island was going to become. They weren't pirates exactly. Some of them certainly had, and some of them certainly would, engage in piracy, but they weren't, you know, flying the black flag, declaring war against all mankind. Instead, they were really more of a, kind of a, a human refuse. They were exiles. They were disgraced mercenaries and destitute one-time landowners. More than anything, though, they were sea-born adventurers, men not averse to a little piracy, but not given over to that way of life completely. Again, from the story of the Bahamas, quote, There was nothing high-minded about the purpose of these men, and nothing dramatic about their arrival. They were merely searching for more productive fields in which to ply their trade. Ambergris. Spanish wrecks and salt first attracted them to the Bahamas, and they soon saw New Providence was an ideal headquarters for their ranging activities. End quote. These men were scavengers, and they were almost exclusively men here. In the early colonial era, women and civilization went hand in hand, but much like Tortuga in the very early days, and much like Madagascar in 1696, this was not yet civilization. What I called a settlement was really nothing more than a few shacks and lean-tos against the tree line, to provide at least a little protection from the elements. More often, though, these men just slept in hammocks when they were sleeping on land at all. Most of their time was spent scouring the beaches of nearby islands for ambergris, as well as signs of wrecked ships that they could salvage. But those colonists sent by the Lord's proprietor, well, they brought civilization with them. There were women on board their ships. They had building materials and machinery for processing sugar. They had hierarchy and an economy and slaves. And these new developments, though the responsibility of all the Lord's proprietor could really be laid mostly at the feet of one man, Christopher Monk, the Duke of Albemarle. And you should remember Albemarle. He's the man who would go on to be Henry Morgan's patron in London when Morgan arrived accused of piracy. He would later on serve as the lieutenant governor of Jamaica, he had a controlling interest in the Carolina colony, and he was the primary financial backer of William Phipps' 1684 treasure-hunting expedition in the Bahamas. And here in 1666, he sat at the head of the Lord's proprietor. Albemarle had his fingers in every pot. Was he the founding father of English piracy? 
Maybe he was the godfather of the buccaneers. Well, I'll leave that up to you to decide. But yes, he was. These two groups, though, the scallywags and the colonists, are never really going to intermingle. The respectable, slave-owning plantation owners, well, they set up shop further inland on New Providence where they could grow better sugar. They built manor houses and slave quarters and churches. But down by the harbor, the fantastic natural harbor that made New Providence such an ideal location and made it such an important location in our story, well, that's where the scum and villainy lived, where the rogues slept in hammocks and drank their weight in cheap rum, and that dichotomy would last for the rest of our time in New Providence Island, from here in 1666 all the way through Benjamin Hornigold, Blackbeard, Bartholomew Roberts, and all of the pirates of the Republic at Nassau. The second Republican democracy in the Western Hemisphere. Next time, we're going to discuss the foundation myths of the Pirate Republic that is to come. I would like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, we wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight